0: you turn in your scriptures, please, to the book of Psalms, and in particular Psalm 97. I'm just going to read a few verses here. Um, I was going to read the, uh, almost all of the psalm, but I might just read verses 1 to 6, because you've had a, a significant scripture reading, and I don't want to stop you meditating on that. So Psalm 97, and I'll just read verses 1 to 6. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. It's a wonderful picture that the psalmist has given of God and his throne. Over the last few months, I've been working on a theme of laying a godly foundation. And in particular, today, I want to look at the foundation of the throne of God. I don't know about you, but uh, I drive along Doncaster Road quite a lot. Um, And it seems to be a very busy place, especially when you see all these apartment towers going up. Do you sort of drive anywhere where there's big apartment towers? OK. Well, the other week, I was, I was watching some workmen laying a foundation for a new apartment tower that's been erected in this area. And firstly, they had to dig a deep hole with reinforced walls. And it seemed they went down so far. I would guess it's maybe three stories down into the ground. And after levelling and compacting the soil at the base, they then laid a mesh of reinforcing rods. When all was prepared, they covered the whole area with with what seemed to me to be about 30 centimetres of concrete. Now, it may have been more because I wasn't all that close. To be sure, this will be a fairly solid foundation for many years to come. And hopefully, it will not crack or split. Because if the foundation cracks and splits, guess what's going to happen to the rest of the building? Mm. Um, It reminded me a little bit, well, they're building this, this tower now, and I guess the design life on it is around about 100 years. Damien's not here. No. I would ask Damien, is Clinton here? No? See, this is why you can't miss out on a Sunday because you never know when the pastor's going to ask you a question. <laughs> I was going to ask these guys, as architects, what's the design life of a lot of these towers that are going up? And I'm guessing it's around about hundred years, but then it reminded me of in Xi'an when we lived there, uh, Dayenta, the big wild goose pagoda. The uh, that structure is still standing today, about sixteen hundred years later. And Australia has a um, uh, a settlement history of how long? Hmm. No, nowhere near as long as that. I wonder if we've got anything in our cities of today that's designed to last 1,600 years. The foundations have to be very solid and very secure. And if we are to lay a solid foundation for our lives, we also need to make sure that that foundation is deep, sure and dependable and will not crack or come apart at the first sign of any stress or trouble that we might experience. And over the past few months, I've been talking about the importance of laying a godly foundation in our lives, of making sure that our values and our principles on which we live our lives and make our decisions will stand the test of time and making sure that our actions and conversations are consistent with having a right relationship with God. That's been my focus over the last few months. If, however, if however we claim that our lives are built on the foundation of God, we must then ask ourselves the question... What is the foundation upon which the very nature and character of God is established? I think that's a reasonable question. Yes, your own life needs to have solid foundation, but what about the foundation itself? Is that solid and secure? Now, in, uh, in China today. There are many people who have laid the foundation of their lives on the Communist Party. And I'm amused, I am amused, that just the other day it was made public that they're setting up a register of sperm donors in China to assist couples who aren't able to have children. But there are qualifications for the sperm donors. Did anybody hear this? No? OK. To be a sperm donor, you have to be a male. Yes? <laughs> um, you have to be a Communist Party member because they only want babies born who are going to be sympathetic to the Communist Party. So, your Communist Party membership is part of your DNA now, apparently. And, uh, and also, the third point, you I'm all wired up now and so the question is what is the foundation upon which the very nature and of God is established that's a good question and then our reading Psalm 97 and it's also found in Psalm 89 the psalmist wrote a very important statement He wrote this, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Now, we would all say to that, Amen. And what this reveals is that the very heart and the very nature of God is not arbitrary or fickle. The very essence of the being of God has a foundation. God is not arbitrary or fickle. God is not some type of cosmic tyrant who changes his mind to simply please his own personal whims and agendas. On the contrary, What it reveals is that God is absolutely moral, absolutely consistent, and absolutely dependable to always think, say, and do everything that is right, good, and honorable. Righteous and justice are the foundation of your throne. In him... There is no error, no corruption, and no deceit. God is the highest and the most pure standard in the universe. Now truly, the psalmist summed up the heart and nature of God so well when he wrote these words. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne having acknowledged this truth we are left with a dilemma if we're talking about the very foundation of the throne of God how are we to understand this statement for example how are we to understand the reference to the throne of God what does it mean and do Young people today understand this term when we use it, when we talk about the throne of God. What do they understand by that? The second is, what is righteousness? What is righteousness? And the third is, what is justice? Now, I could give you a piece of, pen, a piece of paper and a pencil and ask you to answer these three questions what do you understand by the term the throne of God, what do you understand about what is righteousness and what do you understand by what is justice and I am sure, I'm not going to do that but I am sure that at the end if I collected all those bits of paper we would not have a unanimous agreement different people would write and understand different things by these terms so Our understanding is not really what's at issue here. It's who God is that's at issue. So often we bandy around terms and expressions without fully understanding them. We have colloquial expressions like, Your cat ran up my alley. Do you know what that means? It's an expression, Your cat ran up my alley. It actually comes from Leicester in England, and it means that whatever you're talking about has no meaning. Your cat ran up my alley, it's irrelevant. That's what it means. We so often have expressions, and often other people don't have a clue what we're talking about. And the same can be said for these expressions. And if they are so foundational for us, then we should know what they mean. So let's look at them for a few minutes. The first one is the throne of God. What does it mean when we use this expression when we talk about the throne of God? Now, when we use language that speaks of the throne of God, we are acknowledging that God is not merely A cosmic energy force, you know, the Star Wars thing, may the force be with you. We're not talking about that. In using this expression, we are saying that God is a divine being who declares and administers his power and authority over all that is his. He has a throne, he has a seat of government. He makes decisions. He takes actions. That's what we are saying about God, that he is a rational being that knows how to effect the lives of those who depend on him. That's part of the throne of God. For those who come from a monarchical culture, there is an earthly example of that enables us to understand this expression. Did you know that in Australia, we are a monarchical culture? We have a queen. There is the Queen of Australia. And I believe it was a Labour government that acknowledged Queen Elizabeth II as the Queen of Australia around about 20, 30 years ago. We are under a monarch. The monarch makes decisions for our well-being and orders our government and our governmental structures. Now, she's not hands-on. She actually exercises her authority through a governor-general. And Usually, the role of the Governor-General in Australia is purely ceremonial. But it has not always been thus. She does have the power to dissolve the Australian elected government. She chooses not to use that power and that authority. But in understanding the role of the Queen in Australian politics and governance, It helps us to understand the role of God when we're talking about the throne of God. It's that absolute power and authority. For those who come from a more republican, presidential or dictatorial culture, well, you need to to look to the best of what you know to understand this expression, the throne of God. The president of any country is elected by its people to administer the governance of that country. The elected representatives make the laws, but it is the president who must sign that law into action. And nothing happens until the president puts the the signature and the seal. For those who um, come from a dictatorial culture, well, the dictator the dictator should be looking after the country, the welfare of the country, the prosperity of the country, and the welfare of the, of the country, of the people. That doesn't always happen. One only needs to look at Robert Mugabe's record in Africa. Uh, as the country dissolved into a crisis state, they, they don't have a currency now. They use the American dollar as their currency. They went from being an export nation of food to, be, to being a basket case in one of the poorest nations in the world, surviving only on um, uh, international aid handouts. Meanwhile, Robert Mugabe has made himself very rich, multi-million, billion, a multi-billionaire because the aid monies he put in his own pocket. That's a a dictator. How you go from that to understand the throne of God is very difficult. To be sure, in many ways and times, we use our earthly perceptions of what we know to express our understandings of God. And one of the expressions that we use is the Psalm of God. So, from the psalmist, we, reckon, we recognize that God is a rational being who has a will, it is the exercise of his will that enables him to be our creator and the giver and sustainer of life. Look at Genesis chapter 1. And God said, let there be, and it was. And that was the end of the first day. And God said, let there be, and it was. And the end of the second day. And it continued through the six days of creation. It is God in his rational will. He declared it to be so and it was. It is God's will that has determined our past and determines our present and will determine our future. In essence, we have our being because God wills it so. To express this we say that the seat or the basis of the will of God is his throne. It is an expression of his sovereign will. The second statement, of course, was about righteousness. And the simplest understanding of the word righteousness is exactly what it sounds like, that which is right. The root meaning of the word implies something that is actually straight. The whole basis of righteousness is talking about something that is straight because something that is perfectly straight is predictable, is knowable, is understandable. It does not deviate from its path and it's always headed in the intended and correct direction, like a plumb line. A plumb line is always exactly vertical. Always. Have you ever seen a plumb line hanging from a building that's going at all different angles? No, it's always straight. And it's like a laser beam. That beam of light from this device to that dot point is dead straight. It is perfectly straight. I'm not going to put it into anyone's eyes, but wherever I move it, it is always straight to the point that in science now, in medicine, they use a laser light for so many things, not just to build buildings and build roads and bridges and all that, but they are using laser lights now in Micro surgery because it is so dependable, it is so sure and secure, and it is so straight. When the psalmist described God as righteous, he was saying that God is perfectly straight all the time, and God needs no correction the totality of who God is does not drift and does not change course. He is sure and unwavering. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, forevermore. You know, sometimes we may think about God as some kind of superhuman being Who is perfect in behavior, holy in action, and loving in all ways. But God is not just someone living up to a perfect standard. God actually is love. It's not just that God is loving, God is the perfection of love, God is holiness. God is perfection. Actually, God is the standard. God is the standard by which we should measure and judge everything. When we say that God is righteous, we are saying that he is all that is right. And that right originates from God. Everything else is only as right as the degree to which it conforms with God. As one commentator wrote, the simple fact that God does something, does it a certain way, in a certain time, and to a certain degree, makes it holy, makes it righteous, and makes it perfect by default because the foundation of God is original righteousness. The third expression that we used was justice. Justice. And we make much of this word justice today. But do we really know what we mean? After all, it could be argued that justice for one person could be seen as injustice for another. The philosophy of today, in, particularly in the West, is very much the philosophy of relativism. Have you heard about this? If, if you've done university in the last 10, 15 years, you will have heard a lot about it. Relativism is the, the in thing. You know, one person's justice is another person's injustice. One person's uh, it's right for me is not necessarily right for the next person. And it creates a big problem. And certainly relativism is very much the philosophy of atheism today. Because atheism says there are no absolutes. There's no right or wrong. There's no good or bad. And if we take this philosophy of relativism to its extreme, we shouldn't have any jails. Because what's right for one person might not be right for another person. They should be allowed to exercise and live their life as they will because they have a right, because that's their justice. So empty the jails, let everybody out on the street to do whatever they will. That's the ultimate outcome of relativism. We've also blurred the meaning of our word when we claim our rights, because the claim of rights comes out of this warped sense of justice. Take, for example, the issue of abortion. A woman may argue to have an abortion based on the fact that it is her body that has been affected by the pregnancy. She claims it is justice for the law to submit to her claim to have an abortion. Conversely, anti abortion advocates claim that. Her actions lead to an injustice for the unborn baby. They advocate for justice for the child whose voice is not being heard or considered. What's true justice in that? What about the situation of a relationship or a marriage breakdown? The two parties want justice. Justice when seeking custody of the children, because both parties feel the children would be better cared for under their protection. Where is the justice for the young children who have little or no say in the court's decision? We have a problem with justice in our world today. Who is the ultimate source of justice to be able to weigh up the competing interests of all those concerned and to make the right, pure, true decision? Let's face it. Do you trust politicians of today to make the right decisions all the time? I didn't see anyone going like that. I saw a few going like that. What about the the courts? Are the courts always just? To be sure, they administer law, but do they administer true justice? We live in a world of gross injustice where each one interprets the word justice from their own perspective and for their own ends. Who then is the arbiter of true justice to ensure that pure, unbiased and unadulterated justice is always delivered? To whom can we go? Ultimately, The only one who can be trusted to render true justice is God himself. And his justice is always tempered with love, compassion, mercy and grace. Brothers and sisters, do not be deceived. We do not live in an amoral world you know what that word amoral means? You have moral, you have morality, and that's doing the right thing. You have immorality, which is sin and people doing the wrong thing. But amorality means that there is no right, there is no wrong, there is no good, there is no bad. Everything is neutral, everything is permissible, everything is okay, And no one has a right to judge you. That's the amoral position. And that's the position that atheists have taken today. That's relativism. We do not live in an amoral world. We do not live in a world in which everything is acceptable and permissible. Righteousness and justice are an essential part of the foundations of life and should be an essential part of the foundation of any society. We only need to read the scriptures to know that the difference between right and wrong, good and bad, just and unjust, pure and impure, holy and unholy, have always been part of our humanity. Because that's the way that God created us. He created us in His own image. And we know these things of justice and righteousness because He is just and righteous. It is the very foundation of who He is. God is the standard by which we are called to live our lives to reject or ignore God does not invalidate his standards. Just because people say there is no God does not invalidate, invalidate the fact that God exists. And does not invalidate his eternal judgment. Consider passages such as these. Galatians 6 verse 7. This is the word of God. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Don't think you can get away with stuff. Whether you believe in God or not is irrelevant. He sees and knows everything. As I used to say to my uh, students in China, um, I used to tell them that God is all knowing and God's all seeing. Oh, really? I said, Yes. Even when you go and have your weekly shower, He sees what you're doing. He knows. They were a bit shocked at that one. God even sees them in the shower. Everything you do, everything you are, God knows. He will not be mocked. Proverbs eleven eighteen: 18, He who sows righteousness will have a sure reward. And Proverbs 22, 8, He who sows iniquity will reap sorrow. There's the corollary. And of course in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the corollary is in Romans chapter 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can't get away from what God has said. And there are many more such verses in Scripture. And so we are without excuse. We are without excuse. Truly, the psalmist was correct when he wrote, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Brothers and sisters, we should be very careful in our lives not to be misled or deluded With modern trendyism that says that everything is relative and permissible and that there are no absolutes in life any longer. How wrong they are who practice that. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and He has certainly not changed. He is sure and steadfast. And his standard is that upon which we should live our lives. His authority is the ultimate authority. His righteousness is the purest and straightest. His justice is the ultimate because he only sees... He not only sees our actions but he knows our hearts and motives that are behind our actions. He sees and knows all of who we really are and without his mercy and grace, we are the most miserable of all his creation. If the foundation of God's very nature and character is righteousness and justice, we do well in our lives if we look to him as the standard by which we should live. Can you honestly say this about anyone else? Have you ever known anyone else in your life who is perfect in all ways, who is righteous in all things, who is just in all deliberations? I know of no one else. Only God is worthy of our admiration and emulation. Without him, our lives have no sure foundation. Without him, we have no enduring hope. In the coming of the Lord Jesus, God satisfied his need for righteousness and justice concerning our sin and rebellion against him because the Lord Jesus gave his life for you and me. God's perfect righteousness and justice was satisfied when the Lord Jesus freely paid the penalty that we rightfully deserved. And it is because of what the Lord Jesus has accomplished for you and me that we can now speak with confidence the words of Deuteronomy 32. Ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. No one else, no philosophy, no politician. God alone is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. He is a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. When you are building your life on a foundation, make sure that that foundation is sure. God is sure because the foundation of who he is his righteousness and justice let's pray father god we thank you we thank you for your word of scripture that gives our life direction and meaning we thank you lord god that you are the laser beam and we only need to look to jesus Lord God, we have made mistakes in our lives. There are things that we've done that have caused offence. There are things that we have said that have caused offence. And our prayer is that as we look to the Lord Jesus, righteous and pure and just as he is, that through your spirit you would make us day by day more and more like Him. This is our prayer, and we thank you in His name. Amen. Thank you, thank you. Okay.
1: Thank you, Pastor Bruce. Bruce. <laughs> As I got the Bruce right. Thank you very much for your powerful challenge and uh, stirring our hearts and reminding us of. Uh, the God that we worship. There's nothing more I need to say other than ask you to stand and close this time of service with this beautiful song as a reminder of who God is. you, Jesus.
0: Some time in your past, but maybe today in being challenged to look at the very foundation of God, maybe you realise that God's just been a passenger, and you need to make sure that He's no longer a passenger in your life, but actually in the driver's seat if you're in that place and you want to make sure that your commitment to Christ is on a sure and solid foundation today, then I invite you to come and see Pastor Glenn that he might talk with you and pray with you. And the rest of us, well, day by day, make sure that Jesus is number one. By way of benediction, would you just like to reach out to those near you, hold their hand, or put your hand on their shoulder? Guys aren't into holding hands. I understand that, but make connection. Make connection, because we are one in Christ Jesus. We are united by His Spirit, and go out into the world this week in the sure knowledge that Christ is with you. You don't have to be afraid to declare him. His spirit will give you courage and strength. And what you speak is truth, the truth of God. And may his truth impact the lives of all you meet, of all around you. May you be a vessel filled with the Holy Spirit of the Lord to do his work. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you.